Andrew Womack Ministries presents this message titled, Perfect Love Cast Out All Fear. We pray that the Word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen. Praise the Lord. Today I would like to share with you on the subject of God's kind of love and specifically talking about how that God's kind of love is not fear motivated. It is not administered in fear. There is no rejection in it. It's an unconditional God kind of love. Now before I get right into that, I would like to make this point that a lot of people, when you start talking about the love of God, say, I already know about that. I know that God loves me, and they feel like that they don't need any more ministry in that. But there's some scriptures in God's Word that if they mean what they say, which of course God's Word does mean what it said, then there is a lot that we still need to know about the love of God. Let me just read one out of Ephesians chapter 3. This is a prayer that Paul was praying for the Ephesians. And he said in Ephesians 3.17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height. And before I get to the actual point he's making here, let me just say that when you begin to be rooted and grounded in love is when the revelation knowledge of God's Word really begins to abound. God's Word is a love letter to us. It's God expressing His love for mankind. And if you take incidents and things and you divide them up and just make it a mechanical thing, it's possible for you to miss this love and therefore miss the real revelation that God is wanting to give. It's when we begin to understand and understand that God is love that the real revelation of God's Word comes open to us. And that's what these verses are saying. So he's praying that they would be rooted and grounded in love, that they would be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that they might be filled with all the fullness of God. In other words, there's different levels of understanding God's love. Probably most people listening to me have some degree of understanding about how God loves them, but none of us have a full revelation on this. He, Paul is praying that we would receive a complete revelation, the height, the depth, the length, and the breadth, that we would be able to search it out to its further extremities and find out all of the truth about God's kind of love. And then in verse 19 he says, And to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now that sounds like a contradictory statement. If something passes knowledge, then how can you know it? Well, the words that are used here, it's like in the Old Testament, the Scripture says that Adam knew his wife Eve and that she conceived and bare a son. And that word know there is used to designate in, in that instance that I just gave the sexual relationship. But it's used in other terms just to designate an intimacy, uh, a knowing on a personal basis. And so what he's saying here is that we would experience the love of God in a personal, intimate way, which passes mere knowledge about God's Word. And there's many people today that have a knowledge. If you were to ask most people and say, do you know that God loves you? Most people would say yes, but then in practical ways, we don't apply that to our life. Uh, there are religious concepts that actually hinder us understanding the love of God. Many people will think that God loves them so much that he's going to put cancer on them to teach them something. Or that he loves you so much that he's liable to destroy one of your family members or cause tragedy in your life, etc., to get your attention. Now, that's not love. 
I mean, if that if that was love, you could be thrown in jail if you were a physical human being for loving somebody that way. And God himself who set down those laws is not inconsistent with those principles that he established in his word. God is not the one who's going about and doing damage in our life. And yet, see, we've been taught that, and a person who says that and believes that and yet says at the same time God loves him, well, their concept of love is faulty somewhere. I remember once dealing with... Uh, man who came to one of our services and he had a daughter who was, who, who was in a wheelchair and this girl I think was 12 years old at the time she was uh, completely paralyzed I don't think that she had her complete mind and she was more uh, like a vegetable she wasn't able to control herself in any way they had to change her diapers etc and he was in our service, and I was saying something along this line, that it was not God's will for a person to be sick, that God wasn't the one that brought tragedy and problems into our life. God was our answer, not our problem. And I was saying things like this, and it got him so upset that he left, and he was going to totally leave the church and leave the service. And the person who brought him said, well, why don't you wait until the service is over and talk to him, and at least ask him to clarify or say, uh, explain to you what he was saying. So this man stayed around. After the service was over, I went up and talked to him. And he began to tell me that it was God's will that his daughter be in that wheelchair, that God made her that way. And that they had gone through the motions at one time of praying and asking God to heal her, and he was just assured that it was God's will. He began to bring out scriptures about tragedy and trial, etc. I countered with scriptures that God's not the author of our temptation out of James and other places. And so here he was ministering his scriptures. I was ministering the ones that I was using, etc., and we just seemed to be no meeting of the minds. There, he was really upset with me. The guy was uh, really mad at me, and it was a tense situation. And finally, what I did, I just spoke to him, and I said, What's the matter with you? Don't you love your daughter? I said, Do you always want her to be in a wheelchair? Don't you care if she ever gets out and runs and plays with other kids and ever is normal and natural? And, I mean, this guy, like I said, was already mad at me, and now he got really mad. And, I mean, he raised his voice, and he let me know that if he had any amount of money, if there was any treatment, anything he could do, he would see that his daughter had it, that she was normal in every way. He said if he could even substitute and take her place and suffer what she's suffering so that she could be free, he would do that. And he was just reinstating his desire and his love for his daughter and saying, I'd do anything to see her heal. And then I came back and I said, and here you are, a physical human being who has problems, who does not love perfectly, and you think God, who is all love and has all power, loves her less, that he has power, and yet he's not going to use it and minister to her? In effect, that man was saying he loved his daughter more than God did. His love would have produced healing. Well, he's saying, here's God who has all love and all power, and he isn't producing healing. Well, now, see, that's a misconcept. Now, he could argue with my doctrines. He could argue with my scriptures, because there are people that take certain scriptures and say through that that God puts tragedy in your life, etc. But when I brought it down to the level of love, it was inconceivable for somebody who really loved that daughter enough to die for her that he would just let her sit there and suffer in that kind of situation. See, when you understand love, all of a sudden the Word of God begins to make sense. And this man argued with my scriptures, but he couldn't argue when he understood love. When he saw love, he says, well, I guess that makes sense. And he began to soften and understand what I was talking about. See, if you could begin to understand the love of God, if we really experienced it, 
And that past is just mere knowledge, saying, yes, God loves me. If we begin to start applying experientially the love of God to our everyday situations, I guarantee you faith would not be hard. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, that faith works by love. One reason that we've had people go out and take faith teaching and, and try and apply it in ways and come up total failures, and then they get bummed out and say, well, this faith message didn't work. The reason that happens lots of times is because it wasn't motivated by love. We were using faith as a mechanical thing. Somebody was sitting there trying to manipulate God, use faith as a crowbar on God, etc. That's not the way that it works. Faith, if you really understand love, is an inevitable byproduct. A little child that's two years old doesn't go around saying, I confess with my mouth and believe in my heart that my dad will not drop me. I confess with my mouth that he's going to supply me with food every day. Then I'm going to get a tricycle when I'm four, and on and on and on it goes. They don't ever worry. They don't think about anything because they've got this relationship and they're secure in it. There is no fear in God's kind of love. But see, there's a lot of Christians today who are going through their exercises and doing these things, and they're saying and doing right things. But in their heart, they don't really understand the love of God. So they're, they're acting in faith ways, thinking that this faith will make God produce. That's wrong. See, that's void of love. The proper way that it should operate is that we get a revelation of God's kind of love, and we know God loves us so much that I confess my needs are meant, not trying to get God to do it, but because I really believe that they are meant. I believe God loves me so much that He's going to take care of me and do everything, so I just speak it. See, faith works by love. Everything stems out of love. If you're having a problem with faith, you've got a love problem. If you're having a problem in your finances and standing in faith believing that God is going to supply your need well then at the basis of it you've got a love problem another instance that happened to me and this is when my wife and I first got started in ministry we were living in uh, Mesquite Texas in that area we had a little apartment the very first place we ever lived and uh, I had all of my money that I'd saved up before our marriage and I was called to the ministry Jamie and I were beginning the ministry to minister and I made some wrong decisions but my heart was right in it and I just gave away all of this money I couldn't wait to get out on our own to where it was just God supplying our needs now that's not wisdom and I don't believe that's the way God wanted me to do it but God loved me even though I did really something that was stupid in the natural and so anyway we wound up in a situation where we'd given away all of our money nobody knew we had any needs I always was well provided for there was no reason for anybody to think we had any needs and yet we got behind, our rent was behind, we hadn't been eating, and uh, we were in a terrible situation, and yet we were just excited. We were believing God and looking for some kind of a miracle. Well, uh, it got down to where we didn't have anything. When I say that we didn't have any food, I'm talking about that we didn't have any food. The only thing that we had, a man came by, and he drove a Coke truck, and he had a whole uh, package of Fritos, and when we were talking to him, he just said, well, I want to give you a case of Coke, and he threw in some Fritos to go with it. And so we had some Fritos and Coke. That's all that we had. I mean, we didn't have uh, any canned goods. It wasn't a matter of just not eating what we wanted to. We didn't have anything, and for days we'd been without food. And so in this situation, we were trying to stand strong, but I remember coming in from church one night and looking at Jamie as she went to the cupboard and began to look to see if you know any food had just miraculously appeared while we were at church and I saw her do that and boy it hurt me 
and I thought, God, I'm supposed to be providing for Jamie, and I'm not providing for her. Something's wrong. And I really got upset thinking that this isn't right. It bothered me to see Jamie going without food. So we had about a dollar and 75 cents. And I went out that night and bought Jamie a hamburger. I mean, that's the best we could do, but at least I got her some food. The next morning, uh, she had a quarter or 50 cents that we had left, and she went over to wash some clothes. And even though it was in the same apartment complex, she took the car over there so she wouldn't have to carry all of these clothes. And I stayed in the apartment, and I was praying, and I was seeking God. And I mean, I was really upset, thinking, God, I've stood in faith. I haven't got into griping or complaining. I haven't confessed anything negative. I've believed for our finances to be meant. And I started listing all the things that I had done, etc., and saying, God, it didn't fare. And I remember using this statement. I said, God, I'd give my right arm to see Jamie's needs provided. How come you aren't providing ours? And as soon as I said that, the Lord spoke to me, and he said, I gave my son to provide your needs. And he ministered two scriptures to me. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, where it says, that you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might be made rich. And that scripture just was reinforcing that, that I know that. He was reminding me, saying, you, you know that God loved you so much, he died. He became poor so that you through his poverty might be made rich. And then also out of Luke chapter 12, I believe it's verse 32, and it says, Fear not, little flock, for it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And all of a sudden I saw that I had been mechanically going through the motions of saying God supplies my need. But in my heart, I, hadn't re I had, had doubt cast on God's willingness to supply my needs. And that scripture just reassured me that it was my Father's good pleasure to supply our needs. I didn't know where the problem was. I didn't recognize at the time I'd operated in foolishness and given all of our money away. It was years before I really got some revelation on that. But the thing that happened that day, the Lord spoke to me and just showed me how much He loved me. And, and I fell on my knees and I said, Father, forgive me for doubting your goodness, your kindness, your love, your mercy. I began to repent and I didn't understand what was happening. I didn't know what the answer was, but I just knew in my heart that it was my Father's good pleasure to give me the kingdom and everything that went with it. And so from that, that, that love, see, rekindled in my heart immediately. Faith works by love. Faith just welled up on the inside of me, and I knew that God somehow was going to take care of the situation. And it's a long story. I'll make this short. But that night, we had a couple invite us over, and uh, I had told Jamie when she got back from washing clothes at the washeteria that God was going to supernaturally supply our need, and we would eat food that day. And so for lunch, we had Fritos and Coke. We went to church that night, and we were tired of Fritos and Coke, so we didn't have anything for supper. And uh, we just went to church hungry. And I had a guy come up to me at church and said uh, he wanted me to come over to his apartment after church that night. He lived in the same apartment complex that we did. I went over there, and we stood around and talked for a while. And then he gave me, I don't know how many, maybe 15 pounds of this fish that someone else had caught and had given him 30 or 40 pounds of fish and he couldn't eat it all so he just loaded us down with all of this fish and then he said here we want to give you baked potatoes and he gave me all kinds of things to go with it corn and things like that we went home and just a few minutes before midnight Jamie had those fish cooked and we sat down and ate a good meal the next day I had a woman come up to me and she gave us a, a box probably 10 or 15 pounds of porterhouse steaks 
as a birthday present for me. It was my birthday, or it was close to it. And she gave us all that. And I mean, boy, we came from Fritos and Cokes to eating porterhouse steaks and, and uh, grilled fish and all this kind of thing. And it was tremendous. And it all came when I began to understand the love of God. So what I'm saying is, in my own personal experience, I know that, yes, I say God loves me, but there are times that I really don't know the height, the depth, the length, and the breadth of that. I don't know it in an experiential way. And see, that passes knowledge. That passes just knowing about it. And I believe that that same thing is true of you and of all of us. We continually need to go back and understand God's kind of love and understand it in greater detail. And the last part of this verse in Ephesians 3 19 says that if we would know the love of, God, of Christ which passeth knowledge, we would be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, all the fullness of God, that's an awesome statement. That means that we would have everything that pertains unto life and godliness, everything that Jesus purchased for us. The fullness of what God's will is for us would be manifest if we understood the love of God. So you can say this, that if a person is having a physical problem, a sickness problem in their body, there's multiple things involved. There may be something where you're sowing to the flesh. There may be faith that you need to understand about. It may be some of the words that you're saying. There's multiple things involved. But ultimately, if we really had a true revelation of the love of God, these other things would fall in line. Faith works by love. Your faith would just be quickened, as I just gave an example. When you really understand the love of God, your tongue, your words would begin to line up if you really understood the love of God. We wouldn't speak depression and discouragement if we knew that God loved us. We would speak, our speech would reflect that, for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. So a love is a key to everything. The scripture here says that we would be filled with the fullness of God. If there's any of you listening to me who are not totally full of the fullness of God, then you need more revelation on the love of God. Now that applies to me. I haven't arrived yet, but praise God I've left. I can see improvement, but I can still see that there are so many things in my life that I am not walking in everything that the Lord has purchased for me, and so I am still seeking the Lord and desiring to know more about the love of God. So I say all of these things to preface our teaching, talking about God's kind of love and how it cast out fear, to say that, yes, there is more to learn about it uh, than what we've seen, and we need to open up ourselves and receive this truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 13 says that there are three things that abide, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Now, that's a tremendous statement. Faith is a powerful truth. The Bible says without faith it's impossible to please God. Hebrews 11:6. It says that faith is the victory that overcomes the world out of 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, and on and on we could go. Faith is a tremendous thing, and yet the Bible says that love is even greater. Did you know that it's possible to really prosper in the Christian life with a revelation of God's kind of love, even if you don't know that God has provided things like healing, prosperity, deliverance, and etc., some of the benefits of our salvation. If a person doesn't know about that, and if they aren't what's considered a faith person, they aren't out there receiving all of the fringe benefits of their salvation, but if they have a revelation of God's kind of love, they can prosper, and they can be used in a mighty way. And there's people that I've read about uh, who really fulfilled this, were living examples of it, and I won't mention any names, but some of the great names back in history 
that I've read missionaries and things who gave their life and experienced the love of God. They had a relationship, a fellowship with God, and yet they were deceived about the fact that God healed. And they, I remember one man particularly, his wife died on the mission field, and it just devastated him. It hurt him. But because of this love relationship, he was able to continue on, and he affected many people, saw hundreds of thousands of people born again. God used him in a great way. He was a success. I don't believe he was a success in the area of healing, but he was a success in loving God and in touching other people's lives, being used of God. And so I really, I believe that love is a priority. And we simply have gotten caught away many times with believing things in and and uh, seeing things happen sometimes, and we've taken our attention off of it. And yet, love has to be the greatest of all of these things, and love makes everything else work better. Out of 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, the scripture there says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and every one that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. God doesn't just have love. That isn't a characteristic of God, but that's what God is. If you want to know what God is like, then you get a revelation of God's kind of love. You abide in love, and you will be abiding in God. It goes on to say down here in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, it says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. Now this is beginning to deal specifically and give revelation about God's kind of love. There's many things that we could say about it. One of the things that God has really used to minister to me concerning his type of love is that God's kind of love is an unconditional love. It is not based on performance. It's not based on our actions. The Bible says in Romans 5, 8 that God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So God's love is an unconditional love. God's kind of love, when we're talking about releasing it towards other people, is not an emotional thing, but rather it's a decision that comes from our heart. You can will to love another person. Now that's another very distinguishing characteristic, and that's out of Titus chapter 2 and verse 4. But this scripture right here is talking about that God's kind of love doesn't have any fear in it. That perfect love casts out fear. He that fears is not made perfect in love. Now, I'd like to just analyze this for a moment and talk about this because I believe that this is something that very few people have really understood when, we, when it comes to talking about the love of God. The love that most of us have been exposed to is a conditional love, and there is fear in there of that love being taken away. There is fear of punishment, fear of retribution, fear of rejection. And this is the way that it is in our relationships with other people. And sad to say, most Christians have this kind of concept about God's kind of love. That God's kind of love, they are fearful that they will not match up to a standard. They will not be able to earn it. They're fearful that God might take it away or diminish it because of their actions, their performance. They're fearful of being rejected because somehow they don't measure up to the standard. Now... It's easy to understand why that happens because in the natural world, uh, we don't have a role model for God. Everybody else treats us with a conditional type of love. 
from the time we're little kids. We have friends who love us as long as everything is going their way, and then the moment we do something that is no longer a blessing to them, uh, some of those same friends can turn on us and minister rejection to us, can cause hurt and pain, etc. And so we start learning at a very young age this feeling of rejection. And it causes a fear in us. People are, are motivated. They're pushed in their life for acceptance. And it may translate into somebody becoming a working workaholic, trying to gain acceptance, recognition through performance on a job, etc. It could be in relationships. People are driven into multiple relationships, always looking for somebody who will just love them and accept them and they can't sustain them or whatever. It can manifest in different ways, but this fear of being rejected is a very compelling force that uh, can torment people. Just like this verse is saying, fear has torment. If in our relationships with other people or our relationship with God, there is an uncertainty about whether that love is going to continue, about whether we will be able to meet some standard so that they will continue to love us, well, then there's this element of fear there, and it torments us and actually can sour an entire relationship. God didn't make anybody for the purpose of rejection. If you go all the way back to the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 1, God created man in his own image, and he created man for fellowship. He created man without the capacity. I believe, now this is my own personal opinion, but I believe he didn't give us the capacity for rejection. He didn't make us for that purpose. It never was in the mind or in the heart of God. God doesn't intend for people to be rejected. So mankind universally dislikes rejection. Mankind is seeking for acceptance and fellowship. Now that is a positive thing in, in some ways because it, it draws man back unto God. When they recognize the broken fellowship and relationship, well then it draws people to seek that there's got to be more. They aren't content with this state of rejection. But at the same time, it can be a negative force because uh, we can be so hungry for acceptance that we look for acceptance from the wrong places. And that's certainly happening with people today. I tell you, people are not recognizing that God is what they're hungering for and they're looking for acceptance and this fulfillment uh, through things like drugs and sex and all kinds of things. Some people are pouring themselves into performance on the job, etc. And those are not what God intended to minister love and acceptance to us. So there is in every person this desire to be accepted. Nobody likes to be rejected. Now there's some people that may present themselves that way. They may look like they thrive on rejection, but they really don't. There was a time in my ministry where I actually had the concept that someday I would get so strong in the Lord that rejection would have no effect on me whatsoever. I envisioned myself getting to a place where it would be just like water off a duck's back, that it would never penetrate. It wouldn't bother me at all, that people could hate me, whatever. And I envisioned that. And long after I thought that I had reached that place spiritually in maturity and that, you know, I was just so into God that nobody could affect me, I was pastoring a little church in Pritchett, Colorado, and I experienced a tremendous amount of rejection and people coming out and saying things and hurting me. And I mean, I, from my viewpoint, which is um, not always 2020, but I honestly didn't think that I had occasioned it. I didn't think I had caused it, and it felt like it was unjustified, and therefore the hurt was even worse. And to my surprise, I was just devastated by some of the rejection that was leveled at me. And it, 
it hurt me, but also it disappointed me in myself because, like I said, I had this concept that someday I would be able to rise above rejection and it wouldn't uh, hurt me. So I was praying about this and asking the Lord why I was so weak in this area, why I could get hurt. And the Lord spoke to me and said, Andrew, I never wanted you to get so hard that you couldn't be hurt. I didn't make people with that capacity for rejection. I made people for fellowship. And it's not normal, it's not natural for you to have people hurt you and not feel it, not experience that hurt. He says, if you became so hardened that you could not be influenced by people, or not influenced is the wrong word, but if you got so hardened that you couldn't be hurt by other people's rejection, something would be wrong with you. He says, it's good that you can be hurt, but don't ever bear that hurt and let it influence your actions or depress you or discourage you. Get to where you can throw it over on me and let me take care of it, but don't ever become so hardened that you can't become hurt. And did you know when the Lord shared that with me, it just set me free. It ministered to me in a tremendous way because I was trying to deny this need, this desire for acceptance. And the Lord was saying, don't deny it. Just get to where you look to me for your acceptance. Don't look to other people. And when you experience rejection from other people, it's normal to feel hurt, but bring it to me and I will minister to you more than enough acceptance to compensate. And that really ministered to me. All of us are built with this desire for acceptance. You know, I think that this is really what caused back in the 1960s what people call the hippie movement or the flower power or whatever you want to call it. They were Their message, what they said, quote-unquote, was that they, they were preaching love. They were singing songs about what we need is love among our brothers and sisters, and they were singing love, not war. And it sounded good to some people because there was an entire generation that had been neglected with God's kind of love. The parents, there was an era of prosperity in the 50s that bred a lot of people putting themselves into careers, substituting giving things to their children instead of giving God's kind of love. And there was a generation that was neglected. Things weren't satisfying. There was something more to it. There was a lot of criticism leveled at them because there were some changes in styles uh, the length of hair and certain other things like this. And so these criticisms, rejections, made a climate where people were just starved for acceptance. And so here came along the hippies saying, man, we love you. We preach love. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you are. Just be yourself. Be free. That sounded good, and it drew thousands upon thousands of people into this hippie movement. Of course, it was not a true God kind of love because... They were against the establishment. They criticized everybody for criticizing them and saying that they had to have their hair a certain length, that they had to dress a certain way, that their lifestyle had to be such. They criticized the establishment for putting such an emphasis on materialism and on and on it went. And they told people, we'll accept you just like you are. But it really was another subculture. It was a, uh, it, they just established a new establishment. Because if you joined up with the hippies, if 
you would have come in and would have started advocating, you know, uh, dressing up, wearing suits, if you would have advocated going out and earning a living and working an eight-to-five job, if you would have advocated a standard of morality that violated their free sex and free everything, if you would have started saying no drugs, let's be this, well, then they would have rejected you. They would have been guilty of doing exactly the same thing that they accuse the establishment of. So it was a deception. I'm not saying it was the real thing, but it was a clever disguise, and I believe that's the reason so many young people were sucked into it was because of this whole thing of acceptance. People crave for that. God made us that way. But we've got to recognize that it's only God that can minister to us the acceptance that we're really designed for. That's the way that God made us. And did you know it's God's kind of love that has no fear of rejection in it. Out of 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, the scripture here is talking about God's kind of love, and it says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. You know, Satan has tried to imitate and counterfeit God's kind of love, and he's confused us. There's people out, just as I use the hippie movement as an example, preaching love, and yet what they had was no more God's kind of love than anything, and it deceived and destroyed many people's lives. How do you tell the counterfeit from the real? Well, there's many ways when we're talking about God's kind of love, but this is one test right here in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. God's kind of love doesn't have fear in it. There is no fear in it. It goes on to say fear has torment. You could say that there's no torment in God's kind of love. God's kind of love, once you understand it, will drive fear of rejection, fear of punishment, fear of retribution. It'll drive it out of your experience. Boy, that's a tremendous statement. That's, a, that's one of the distinguishing characteristics of God's kind of love. Now, many of you right now are searching through your mind, analyzing your attitudes and thoughts about God's kind of love towards you, and that doesn't seem to set right. Many people are saying, wait a minute. Uh, God loves us, but there's fear of punishment, and if we don't do all of these things, and if we don't measure up to a certain standard, man, we'll suffer rejection. That's not what that means. I believe that that's exactly what it means. I believe that a lot of our attitudes and values about God's kind of love have been taught to us wrong. They are not substantiated in the Bible. For instance, when it comes to the salvation experience, many people were brought to confess Jesus as their Lord because of fear of punishment. What most people call evangelism in the United States today is preaching on hell, talking about sin, punishment for sin, and telling you all of these things, and then they may spend 45 minutes talking about the negative things going on in your life and the negative things that will happen to you if you don't repent, and then they'll spend five minutes saying, but Jesus has provided a way, receive it, and you can be set free. Now, when it's presented that way, there are many people that have come to the Lord not really motivated out of love for God, but rather out of fear of punishment for themselves. And that's the reason that they've confessed Jesus as their Lord. Now, I'm not saying that that cannot produce true salvation in you. It's better to serve God out of fear than not to serve God at all. But this scripture says that fear has torment. People who come to the Lord with that reasoning, they may confess Jesus as their Lord, they may do some right things, they may receive salvation, but they are not going to have that joy, that peace, 
that comes from knowing God in an intimate way as a loving father. They're going to serve him as a servant. They're going to serve him out of fear. Again, it's superior to serve him out of fear than not to serve him at all, but there's something even greater than that. The way that Jesus came preaching the gospel was that he just started loving people. He laid down his life. He gave. He commended his love toward us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, is what it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God loved us and showed love. Like, for instance, when he took the woman in the very act of adultery and when everybody else wanted to stone her, instead of telling her, are you, are you scared? Are you going to repent? If you don't, I'm going to let them stone you. Repent or I'll stone you. He didn't do that. Instead, he totally ministered forgiveness and love to her. And she fell so in love with him because of the mercy extended to her that that's the reason she served him. She was serving him out of love, not out of fear. Now, I'm not saying that fear doesn't have any place. Again, the Scripture talks about, you know, that the law, which ministered fear, is given not for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient. You can use that fear tactic and, and uh, preaching about judgment and what the consequences of sin are to get people's attention. And I believe that that is a scriptural principle, according to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5 through 9. But it is not supposed to be the motivation for a Christian. It may get our attention, but then it ought to be the love of Christ that draws him to him. Like Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says it's the love of Christ that constrained him to lay down his life and to go minister the word, etc. And many of us are not motivated by love. I know in the church that I was brought up in, I was... Uh, Salvation was preached very strongly, and then after you got born again, they didn't believe in the baptism of the Holy Ghost. They didn't believe in healing. They didn't believe in prosperity. They didn't really believe in much of any of the benefits of salvation. So we spent a lot of time singing about heaven when we all get to heaven, talking about getting born again, and the only other thing that they did was tell you that after you got born again, go get somebody else born again. So it was all centered around salvation, and there was a tremendous guilt trip put on you about leading somebody else to the Lord. Now, I believe it's important for Christians to be, re uh, to be able to reproduce and lead other people to the Lord. But again, I question the motivation. I know that in my heart, I got to where I was witnessing. I went to church service. Every time the doors were open, I went to the adult visitation. I started a special youth visitation. I went through all of the witnessing programs. I did everything that there was to do in that area. But my motivation behind it was always out of fear. Fear that God wouldn't bless me if I didn't tell somebody else about the Lord. Fear that someday I was going to stand before God and God was going to punish me and judge me for not being faithful to tell other people about the Lord. They would use scriptures about the blood of others being on my hand. They'd tell stories about imagining somebody being in heaven and seeing your neighbor sent to hell. And that neighbor, as he's drug off by the angels to hell, is going to stick his finger in your face and say, It's your fault. Why didn't you tell me about the Lord if you were a Christian? And you know what those stories would motivate me to do? I guarantee you, for a period of time, I'd be evangelistic after that. I'd witness to everybody. I'd force myself. It wasn't my nature. I mean, I was a shy person. When I was in high school, I couldn't look at a person in the face and talk to them. I was shy. I was timid. And yet I'd psych myself up and make myself go out and witness and leave tracks and tell other people about the Lord, not because I cared for people, but because I cared for myself. It was all self-centered, selfish. 
I was fearful that I was going to be punished, that someday self would suffer if I didn't witness. And so I'd go out and witness, not motivated out of God's kind of love, but rather motivated out of a self-centered, fear-oriented love. And did you know my witness came across that way too? It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that if you give your body to be burned or give all of your substance to feed the poor and don't do it motivated with God's kind of love, it profits you nothing. I was out knocking on doors. I was witnessing to people. I was passing out tracts. I was teaching courses on how to be a soul winner. But did you know my motivation was wrong and it wasn't profiting me anything. I was empty inside. I didn't have the joy of my salvation. I was always doing it with the wrong motive. There was fear in that kind of a love. If you would have asked me, matter of fact, most people didn't even have to ask me. They could see my zeal and they said, boy, he really loves God. But it wasn't a perfect kind of love. It wasn't a mature love. I loved God in a sense, but I was serving him out of fear. And this scripture here in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, makes it clear that when you're operated out of that fear motivated motivation, fear of punishment if you don't do it, that that's not God's kind of love. And it was profiting me nothing. Matter of fact, I was tormented in my relationship. I was always doing these good works, but constantly tormented with the thought, God, is it enough? Are you pleased with me now? Will you answer my prayers now? Can I have joy now? Have I done enough? See, that's, there's no peace in that kind of a relationship. That's the kind of a relationship that the world has. Again, most marriages, that's the way most marriages are based. It's, it's always walking on eggshells, wondering, are they upset with me today? Have I done enough? Have I matched up to this standard? There's people that have developed that same mentality with God, and sad to say religion is basically where this has been fostered from. But that is not what God's Word is teaching. God's kind of love, you can become so secure in it. Matter of fact, that scripture that I quoted earlier, Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it says, But God commended his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We use that scripture out of context, and the statements that we're making through it are true. I made a statement out of context a minute ago about that that was an example that God loved us not when we were lovely, but when we were yet sinners, he died for us. Now, that's a true statement. But in context, that is not the point that he's trying to get across in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. The point that what he's doing is he's making a contrast. And he's saying, if you can accept that God commended his love or gave his love to you in that while you were yet a sinner, then the point he's making is verse 9. Much more now, being justified by faith, we shall be saved from wrath through him. If God loved us while we were yet sinners... And if we can confess Jesus as our Lord and get an assurance, a confidence that God loves us, no more fear of going to hell, no more tormented about what's going to happen if we were to die. If that fear can be cast out when it comes to making Jesus Lord and getting our sins forgiven, he's making the point of saying much more now shall we be saved by his life talking about in this life, not off in the future, not just eternal salvation from hell, but much more now in our everyday walk with the Lord, should we be able to be secure, void of fear, about whether God is going to accept us or reject us, whether we performed well enough or not. And yet for most people, most Christians, it's exactly the opposite. We have a security, no fear about hell. We believe that our sins are forgiven, but when it comes to that daily walk with the Lord, we are fearful about, have I done enough? Have I prayed enough? Is God pleased with me yet? And there isn't that security. It's because love hasn't been applied to our everyday walk with the Lord. We've got some misunderstanding about God. 
One of those things is that religion has used this fear of rejection to motivate us. It's understandable why it happens because I tell you, fear is something that everybody relates to. Like I said earlier, God didn't make any of us to uh, crave rejection. Nobody wants it. And so you can use this fear of rejection as a motivation, and every person can relate to it. Every person can understand what you're talking about because it's something universal inside of mankind. Did you know that when we were raised up as children, most of us had this fear of rejection as really the motivation for us? For instance, when you're uh, a little kid, and if your parents are trying to get you to stop sucking your thumb, many times they'll revert to a fear to motivate you out of sucking your thumb. They'll say, if you don't stop sucking your thumb, none of your friends are going to like you. Your friends are going to say that you're a sissy. You're a little baby starting school and still sucking your thumb. What are people going to think about you? You know what that is? That's using fear of rejection, fear of other people rejecting us to motivate us to do something. Now, there's no argument that that kind of uh, teaching will work I mean, you can get people to conform to a certain standard by threatening them with fear of what other people think, but at the same time, you're tormenting them. You're teaching them a principle that Satan is going to be able to come in and he's going to be able to play off of those same things that you've established in that child and later cause tremendous detriment in their life. I know that I was in a Christian school one time, had about 500 kids in this school, and they asked me to be the chapel speaker. And before the service started, I was given a tour and I was given some literature. And I noticed on the literature that it had there as some of the positive things about this Christian school. It said positive peer pressure. In other words, they were advocating that because the majority of the kids in that school were living a very godly moral standard, that you could take somebody with uh, immoral standards or something wrong, put them in that positive peer pressure atmosphere, and it would encourage them to conform because they because of acceptance. They were desiring acceptance, so they would drop their dope, drop their uh, pornography, drop these things, and they would adopt these moral codes through this positive peer pressure, and they made that one of their selling points. Now, I know that that works, but did you know that actually that is the wrong motivation for doing something? Because even though you may get a child through the positive peer pressure to conform to a certain standard, you've actually used a negative motivation to accomplish it. And the moment they get out of that positive peer pressure thing and say they join the army, go into the military service, and they're no longer in a positive peer pressure, but they become into a negative peer pressure where they're encouraged to drink and go out and commit adultery and to do all of these kind of things. Did you know that the training that was given them, they were trained to conform to what other people thought about them, do whatever it takes to be accepted. Now the, the group has changed. The morals have changed, the standards have changed, but that same thing that was drilled into them at Christian school will cause many people to go out and co compromise their moral standards and conform trying to gain acceptance from other people. See, that's the wrong motivation. Satan uses that kind of a motivation. The proper motivation for training a child is to teach them that this is what God wants of you. And the reason you do this 
is because God has already given you His love. You don't have to do these things to be accepted with God. You don't do these things to be accepted with people, although that that's a byproduct. I mean, if you live a holy life, people are going to like you. If you bless them instead of just trying to bless yourself, you will be a blessing to other people, and they'll like it, and people will respond to you. I think that that needs to be understood. I mean, it's the way the world functions, but it shouldn't be the motivation. It shouldn't be the dominant thrust behind our training. We should teach people that, look, God loves you just like you are. And because God loves you so much, don't you want to serve Him? Don't you want to glorify Him? Don't you want to point other people towards Him? That should be the motivation is love. It shouldn't be a threat of rejection. When we do that, you know, like I use this example of breaking a little kid from sucking their thumb. We do that over and over, and we use peer pressure. And what are other people going to think about you to dominate them? And then when they become teenagers, the girl comes home and she's pregnant. And Christian parents will just fall apart and say, why did you do this? What could have caused you, what could have over, come over you that would have made you do this? And the Christian kid will say, well, everybody's doing it. And you know, the Christian parent will say, well, why do you care so much what everybody else is doing? Without realizing it, we've instilled that fear of rejection in our child. We've played on it, and we've made that paramount pri priority. Do whatever it takes to make people accept you. And even though it may get a certain conformity, it torments people. We're, we're raising generations of insecure people that don't know who they are. I tell you, there was a tremendous change in my life when I had an experience with the Lord and I experienced God's love to such a degree that it didn't matter anymore what people thought of me. I mean, God loved me. And nobody else, regardless of who they were, compared with God loving me. And I just got so into the fact that God loved me that people could reject me. And even though, like I was sharing earlier, it, it hurt in a sense, I refused to let it dominate me because God was really number one. He was priority. I became so secure in God's love that I tell you there was a freedom. There was a peace that I experienced in knowing that God loved me. I was secure. If you were to go into psychology today, the psychology deals with this thing constantly, you know, talking about uh, people's insecurities and, and on. And they're trying to approach it from a wrong attitude. They aren't trying to use God as the source of all of your security. Instead, they're trying to substitute other things. But they're, they're trying to deal with the same issue. We've got an insecure group of people today that never have just settled and come to rest and come and have come to grips with who they are. They're always trying to conform to whoever they're supposed to be in other people's opinion. Other people's opinion shouldn't mold you, and yet we've been trained that direction. And sad to say, the same thing has been applied to God. Religion has taught us that God's not pleased with us until we conform to a certain level, a certain standard. And that's just not so. Like I was telling you earlier, I was under this wrong concept. I was trying to perform to gain God's acceptance. I was out witnessing, knocking on doors, doing all of these things. I even uh, taught soul winning courses and took young people with me to teach them how to be soul winners. But it was just a formula, a form that I was going through. I was tormented inside because, see, I was doing it with the wrong motivation, the wrong attitude behind it, thinking, God, now will you love me? Now will you accept me? God, now can I experience the love, the acceptance, just the confidence that you love me? And did you know I never was able to obtain to it by all of those actions, all of those works that I was doing? 
I was doing good things. I read my Bible every single day. I prayed every single day. I witnessed to other people. I went to church. I lived a moral standard. And yet I was empty on the inside. There wasn't that joy unspeakable and full of glory. When I'd go up and knock on these doors and try and witness to people, did you know that inside I'd be praying, God, don't let there be anybody home? Because like I told you, I was an introvert. And I was shy, and it wasn't my nature to talk to people. It was hard. It was something I had to force, and there wasn't any joy in it. In my heart, I'd be praying, God, don't let everybody be anybody home. I'd be tormented the whole time I was out serving God. But on March the 23rd, 1968, in a Baptist pastor's study in Arlington, Texas, at midnight, I had an experience where it's a very long story. I won't go into it. I've got this on other tapes. But I had an experience where I knew that God loved me. And it was when I was at my worst. It's when I confessed that, God, I failed you. I've blown it. When I quit trying to perform and equating God's accepting me based on my performance. And I just said, God, have mercy on me. Then is when I experienced God's unconditional love. God's love came flooding in on me in such a way that I don't think I could ever adequately explain that to anybody. I read Charles Finney's account of when he recognized that God loved him. And he said it was like waves of liquid love flowing over him for day after day after day. Well, it happened to me for four and a half months. For four and a half months, all I could think of was that God loved me. I didn't think about what I had to do to be pleased with him. There was no conditions. There was no I love you if. It was just God loved me, and he loved me when I was at my worst. And if he could love me when I was at my worst, I just knew intuitively that he loved me even when I was at my best or in between or anywhere. God loved me not based on performance. That's what I was sharing a minute ago out of Romans 5, 8, and 9. I had that revelation of it, and it revolutionized my life. It took fear out. It took torment out. I just knew that God loved me, not based on my performance, but based on the fact that God is love, and God commended His love towards me just because He desired to do it. Now, that didn't cause me not to go out and serve God anymore. I served God more. Instead of making, you know, five extra visits a week in this special youth visitation, I got to where I started witnessing to everything that moved. I divided the city of Arlington, Texas up into sections, and a friend of mine, we began to knock on doors and make a hundred visits a day and talk to people and try and witness to them about the Lord. And instead of saying, God, don't let there be anybody home, and just go through the motions so that I could get the acclaim of other people, the recognition, the acceptance of other people, instead... I didn't even care what other people said. I didn't turn in my visits anymore to church and get a pen for my visits. That was no, no longer my motivation. It didn't matter to me. I didn't care if people knew about what I was doing. I was out witnessing to people because I loved them. And instead of this attitude, God, don't let there be anybody home, I started praying, God, help me to get in and witness to people. Just lead me to the houses where there's people home so that I can talk to the most number of people today and not waste my time knocking on doors where no one's home. Also, we had people that were so deceived, you know, you'd ask them if they were a Christian, and they actually, I had people pull coins out of their pocket and say, well, certainly I'm a Christian. It says in God we trust, and they didn't understand that it had to be a personal relationship with God. They thought because they had a coin in their pocket, that made them a Christian. So we started trying to, trying to use gimmicks to get people to listen to us. And I remember that one day I'd been knocking on doors. This was early in the morning. And people had been slamming doors in my face. They wouldn't talk to me. They were rude. And I remember I just determined, bless God, I'm going to talk to this next woman that comes to the door. I don't care if I have to knock the door down to get to do it. 
I went up there with a determination. Anyway, when I knocked on the door, this lady came to the door and I went, Praise God, I finally found a Christian. That's the way I greeted her. And this lady looked at me and said, What makes you think I'm a Christian? And see, here she was on the defensive. Instead of trying to convince me she was a Christian because of a coin in her pocket or something, here she was, a perfect opening to share with her about what a real Christian was. And I said, Well, you've got to be a Christian. you got a scripture written on your fence. And boy, that got this lady's attention. And she said, a scripture on my fence? What are you talking about? She opened up the door and looked around the corner. And I said, well, see right here. And I turned over to Philippians 3, 2, where it says, beware of dogs. And I just kept on reading. I mean, this woman was so shocked. She let me read nearly the entire third chapter of Philippians to her, present the gospel before she shut the door on me. The point that I'm making is, look at the difference in my attitude. Now... I, I didn't have fear when I was out witnessing to people because I wasn't doing it to earn something from God. I wasn't doing it thinking, God, is it going to be good enough? Am I going to do this right? I already had the love of God. I wasn't witnessing to get God to love me. I was witnessing because God already loved me. That perfect love of God. When I began to understand that God didn't love me based on my performance... But God just loved me, and therefore my performance was a byproduct, a result of having God's love in my life. When I saw that, it changed my life. It changed my attitude. It changed my actions. And I tell you, it set me free. I began to experience the joy of the Lord in a way that I never had before. You know, the reason that most of us can't give this unconditional kind of love in our relationships to other people is because we haven't really received it ourselves. Most people have been taught that God will love them proportional to their performance. And I've alluded to this a number of times on this tape. But brothers and sisters, that's not so. We've got to renew our mind. That's not perfect love. That's not God's kind of love. God's kind of love loves us in spite of who we are. You know, when it comes to salvation... I believe people have a revelation of this, and that's the reason it's so easy to get saved. We tell people that Jesus came to die, he died to save sinners. If you're a sinner, you qualify. You know, if a person came to me right now, and if they said, well, I'm too bad, God wouldn't love me, I could pull scriptures out about how Christ died for sinners, he commended his love toward us, and while we were yet sinners, Romans, where it says that where sin abounds, grace abounds greater, on and on and on it goes. And we could sit there and say, look, God loves you in spite of what you've done. Most people listening to me would say, I agree with that 100%. It doesn't matter if you're a drunk. It doesn't matter if you've uh, committed adultery or whatever your sins are. God loves you, and if you'll just ask for forgiveness, believe and receive that forgiveness that you can be saved. See, people preach that salvation is not based on performance. It's just based on whether you believe and receive or doubt and do without. That's it. But when it comes to healing, our prosperity, our joy, our blessings, and on and on, after you're born again, most people believe that unless you're doing what you should, unless you're paying your tithes, unless you're reading the Word, unless you're treating your wife the way you should, unless you're going to church, unless you're living moral, unless you're out witnessing and sharing your faith, unless you're doing this and this, and we have all kinds of different standards that different churches put down. Unless you conform to these standards, God won't bless you. Now, that's amazing that you could receive the greatest gift that God will ever give, which is salvation, not based on your performance, but rather based on Jesus' performance. And yet, here you are, God won't give you $5 when you're in a pinch unless you've been reading your Bible every day. 
Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't read the Bible. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be holy. But I'm saying that God doesn't change in His dealing with us after we get born again. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, the scripture there says, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. That means the same way that you receive Jesus, not based on your performance, but based on Jesus' performance, and you put faith in what He had done, not faith in what you've done. That's the same way that you should continue to receive from God. The only reason that it's easier to receive salvation than it is healing is because when it comes to salvation we look totally to a savior and we trust his love unconditionally we don't think that god loves us because we've got it all together anybody that thought they had it all together when they came to the lord for salvation didn't get saved because you've got to humble yourself and make jesus your lord not ask jesus just to help you but rather you've got to totally humble yourself and say god forgive me like the illustration of the publican and the Pharisee. The Pharisee was thanking God for all his great works and trusting that surely you're going to accept me because I'm so great. I fast twice in the week. I pay tithes of mint and anise and cumin. I do all of these religious things. And yet the publican said, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said it was the publican, the old tax collector, the thief, the fraud, who humbled himself and asked for forgiveness. He's the one that was justified and the other one wasn't. See, when you come to the Lord, you can't be advocating your own holiness. You have to look to a Savior. That's the reason that it's easy to get saved is because we are established that our performance does not gain us anything with God. So therefore, we don't look to ourselves, trust in ourselves. We put all of our faith in a Savior. But then when it comes to our personal walk with the Lord after we're born again, the same truth has not been applied. Many people think that God is going to love them based on how well they perform. And so now, they've, since they've been born again, they really desire to please God, so they set down standards of, I'm going to fast so much, I'm going to pray every day, I'm going to have a devotional time, I'm going to be this, I'm going to be that, with this mentality of, God, see what I've done? Is it enough? Now will you answer my prayers? You aren't going to get your prayers answered that way. If you would have come to God that way for salvation and say, God, have I done enough? Now save me if I'm good enough. Well, then you wouldn't have gotten saved. You had to trust a Savior. That's the reason people aren't being healed today. I have people come to me and say, Brother, I've fasted, I've prayed, I've studied the Word, I go to church, I pay my tithes, I love my wife, I love my kids, I've done all of these things, why hasn't God healed me? Well, you told me why God hadn't healed you. Because, see, you pointed to what you've done. That's not to say that you shouldn't be doing those things, but you're trusting in what you've done. You don't have a concept of God's perfect love. You don't have a concept that, look, it's not your goodness that causes God to act in your life. It's God's goodness towards you, independent of your actions, that causes you to act holy and to live holy. Your holiness doesn't earn you favor with God. Your lack of holiness will not deny the favor of God to you. But your holiness will shut a door on the devil. It won't give Satan place in your life. And your lack of holiness will open up a door to the devil to come in and steal, kill, and destroy. So it's important to live holy. It's important to do what God's Word says, to go to church, to do these things. But it's not important to earn the favor of God. That is a free gift. That's God's kind of love, unconditional kind of love. It's important because holiness changes you. Holiness changes the condition of your heart towards God. It does not change God's heart towards you. All of that is dependent upon Jesus. That's God's perfect kind of love. And brothers and sisters, we use the terminology sometimes, but very seldom do we really have that kind of attitude. There are many of you listening 
who have fallen into the same trap that I was in to where you were zealous about doing good things, about doing Christian things, and yet your motivation behind it was fear. Fear that if you didn't do it, God wouldn't love you, that God wouldn't answer your prayers, that God would reject you. And so you were doing trying to earn the favor of God. That's not God's perfect kind of love. Perfect love will cast out fear. Perfect love has no fear in it. A person who fears is tormented. And there are many of you that are tormented in your relationship with God. It may not have been obvious to you before, but all of a sudden now it's obvious that, God, I'm, I'm doing all of the right things, but for the wrong reasons. God, I've doubted your love for me. I thought that you only loved me when I was worth loving. And because of that kind of thinking, you've been under guilt and condemnation. You've been getting what you deserve. I want you to know that God wants to give you something you don't deserve. I used to develop pictures, and we would have people come in and say, Well, this, this uh, picture doesn't do me justice. And we'd say, Lady, you don't need justice. You need mercy. <laughs> and you know, it's the same way with us and God. Sometimes we get to thinking, God, it doesn't seem like justice. But we don't need justice. We need mercy. We need an unconditional love. And that's the kind of love that God commended towards us. That's the kind of love that God has. There's no fear in it, no dread of punishment. Perfect love casts out fear. If we still have fear in our relationship, I'm talking about a dread, not a reverence, but a, a dread, a fear of being punished, of being rejected, of being not accepted or not gaining things from God, then we have not yet been made perfect in love. God's kind of love does not have fear in it. There was a woman that came to me once at one of our camp meetings, and she began to share a problem with me, and she was really proud of what she had done, and she was sharing this with me to really gain my approval. And what she shared was that she had been married to an alcoholic husband for 20-something years. She had never really gotten mad at him. She had loved him in spite of it, just tried to love him through the thing, and his drinking had gotten worse and worse and worse. And finally, right before she came to the camp meeting, she told me, that she laid the law down to her husband and said that when she was going to go to this camp meeting, when she got back, if he had been drunk or if he was drunk then, that she was leaving him. She would never put up with it again. And she came to me sharing this, thinking, boy, this is going to work. Don't you think that was a good idea? And you know what I began to share with her was that you may get that man to quit drinking because he's so fearful of losing you and losing your love. I said, if you've really loved him over these 20 years, you're probably about the only good thing in his life, and he may be so fearful of losing you that he'll quit drinking. But I said, I can promise you this, and I read this scripture, 1 John 4:18. There is no fear in God's kind of love. Perfect love casts out fear. I said, you have tormented this man with fear. Fear has torment. I said, you've dangled over his head a fear of rejection. And even though that fear of rejection may get conformity to a standard, I guarantee you that man's tormented now with possibly losing the only good thing that he's got in his life. And I said, drunks aren't known for their strong character. I said, it's possible that instead of him being able to resist the devil and the craving for alcohol, that he's, with, he's already beat down, he's got a weak character, and I said it's possible that instead of resisting it, it'll actually drive him to drink. He'll know that he's not going to have the power to withstand it, and he'll just give in and go try and drown himself and destroy his life and drink. I, I shared with this lady, I said, 
that can work sometimes. But I guarantee you now, Satan is using the fear that you placed in his life to torment that man, and you don't know for sure what the results of that's going to be. That's not the right motivation. The proper motivation is to love him and say, look, I do not approve of what you're doing. I hate it because it's destroying you. It's destroying our home. It's hurting me. It's not pleasing God. It's not a good testimony. On and on you could go with that. It says, but I want you to know that I love you irregardless and that I am going to continue to love you and I'm going to pray that you'll be set free by love. Now, it's easier sometimes to use fear. Like in the church, uh, there's different motivations for giving. You can motivate people to give out of fear. Use Malachi chapter 3, verse 8, that if you don't tithe, you've robbed God, and that God's going to get you, that God will curse you with the curse, and on and on it goes. Now, that's one motivation for giving. But did you know that it has torment? There's some people that they do not have a joyful attitude about their giving, and in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 9 says that let every man gives as he purposes in his heart, for God loves a cheerful giver. If you aren't giving cheerfully, and that cheerfully is talking about free will, not grudgingly or of necessity, not like a debt, but if you're giving out of debt, out of obligation instead of cheerfully, that's not the kind of giving that God loves. Now, I haven't got time to teach on this. i got another tape entitled The Tithe that will explain that. But the Old Testament attached a motivation of fear for serving God. In the New Testament, God revealed something greater than that, and that was love. Love doesn't cause you not to give. A person who loves will actually wind up giving more than 10%. 10% is a minimum. But there's different motivations for love, like in our ministry. We don't demand that people give for our tapes. We give our tapes away free. Does that mean that we don't need people to give? No, it doesn't. We need it as much as anybody. But see, we are wanting people to give cheerfully. And did you know that people do give? And I've had hundreds of people tell me that when they give to our ministry, that they have more joy than any other time. Because when they give to some other ministries, sometimes they are giving in payment for goods, and they feel kind of like it's a payment. They don't have any more joy out of that than they would going and buying a meal at McDonald's or buying a piece of clothes and paying for it. But when they give to our ministry, it's not in payment for something. It's out of gratitude. It's thanksgiving and to help us to minister to other people. And people have joy with it that they don't have at other times. They give motivated out of love instead of motivated out of fear. Did you know I actually believe that love is a superior motivation? I've seen some people in our ministry give everything. I saw a man one night when he got born again. He had his paycheck, months worth of pay in his pocket, and he was so thankful for finding Jesus and me being the one that shared it with him that this man took his entire month's paycheck and just signed it over to me. And when I saw that in the offering, I called him up the next day and told him, I said, look, God doesn't expect you to give everything. You need to use wisdom, and I gave him his paycheck back. But see, that man, he had love, gratitude in his heart. Nobody demanded, of, demanded that of him. I've seen people through love give everything. And on the other hand, I've seen people through condemnation, somebody standing up saying, if you don't give, you're cursed. We're going to lock the doors and not let you out of here until you give. When that's the motivation behind it, you may get some money, but I guarantee you, you're hurting that person. You're tormenting them. You're telling them that if you don't give, God won't bless you. God's going to get you and on and on. That's not the proper motivation. But most churches will use that motivation because it's an easier motivation. People can relate to fear easily. They've been trained well in that area. Sometimes love 
uh, will be abused. If you operate in love and just tell people to give because you love God, you may not get as much money right then. You might be able to wring more money out of people through using a fear technique than you do a love technique, but I guarantee you in the long run, love is going to bless that person, set them free, and over a long haul, you're going to be better off operating in love. That's the way that Jesus operated. Jesus could have come and condemning people and blasting them. The only people that Jesus got strong with were the religious hypocrites who saw no need for God. Those are the ones he rebuked. The sinners, the prostitutes, the publicans, tax collectors, he ministered mercy to them. And he used love to change them. Romans 2.4 says it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. So brothers and sisters, God's kind of love is an unconditional love, not based on your performance. And because of that, there can be security. There can be no fear of punishment. There can be no fear that God is not going to meet your needs, that God's not going to bless you. Because you understand that God loves you so much. When you understand that, just like some of the stories I've given today, your faith will be quickened on the inside of you. Faith will work by love. All of a sudden, you'll begin to start seeing miracles take place in your life. Needs be provided. You'll see bodies healed. You'll see sickness flee from you. Not because of something you did, but because of what Jesus did and your revelation of it. That perfect kind of love cast out fear. Fear is an opposite to faith. You could say that fear is unbelief. Fear is counterproductive to faith. It's the opposing force of faith. If you have fear there, it's actually going to negate your faith. When you get into a perfect kind of love that casts out fear, that drives fear out of your life, you'll find out that the faith that was already present in you will be free to work in a way that you've never experienced it before. Praise God. We need a revelation of how much Jesus loves us. Instead of trying to just operating God's love towards other people, you can't give away what you don't have. We need to let God, first of all, love us. You need to get a revelation of God's kind of love. And once God loves you, I promise you, just like in my own personal testimony and is verified in the Word and other, other places, once you get a revelation of how much God loves you, an unconditional kind of love that causes no fear in you, then you'll wind up serving God more than you ever did through fear. But there won't be any torment associated with it. Now I witness to people, and I don't have to psych myself up to do it. Did you know my personality is still basically the same? Now it's been altered, molded, improved upon, but I'm still not a real outgoing person. But did you know the thing that made me change to where now I talk to thousands of people in meetings, I minister to people over radio, make tapes, do all of these things, was the love of Christ. I literally got more in love with God than I was myself and what people thought about me. It was that perfect love that cast out fear. When I experienced God's kind of love, it so revolutionized my life that I was able to break bondages, holes, personality uh, problems that were in my life. And I'm still dealing with those things, and I'm gaining more victory over them all the time. It's God's kind of love, that perfect love, that casts that fear out of me. You need a revelation of just exactly how much God loves you today. You may have blown it. You may have blown it big time to where you are in things that are considered sin by the establishment. Or you may be condemned over not things that you've done, but rather things that you haven't done. You may just feel like you've never done enough. Both of them have torment. Both of them, if you are using your own performance as a standard, 
of thinking, God, now do you love me? Am I good enough now? There's torment in that. I want to share with you that there's there's something better than that, and that is that God loves you, not based on who you are. God loves you in spite of who you are, not because of who you are. And if you can ever get hold of that truth, it will revolutionize your life. It'll cause joy unspeakable and full of glory when you understand that God just loves you because of who He is, not because of who you are. Praise the Lord. Father, I ask you to make this a revelation to these people that are listening to this tape. I ask you, Father, to do in them the same work that you've begun in me. That, Father, you would show them your love, the height, the depth, the length, and the breadth of the love of God. That they would experience it in a way that passes mere knowledge so that they could begin to start experiencing the fullness of God. Father, I ask you for that. I ask you right now through the Holy Spirit to just give a revelation of your unconditional love, that it would cast out this fear of punishment, fear of rejection, fear of not being enough, and that they would make Jesus what they could never be in their own life. And Father, I thank you. I believe that you are bringing that to pass, and we agree together and receive this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We hope that your heart has been quickened by hearing the Word of God through this message. Remember, Andrew Womack Ministries operates a helpline that you can call for prayer and information at 719-635-1111. We have a ministry website at www.awmi.net and you can write the ministry at P.O. Box 3333, Colorado Springs, 80934. Until next time, we pray that you will reach out by faith and receive everything that is yours through God's grace.